You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Our sermon text this morning is Acts 18, 1 through 11. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. When Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogues every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Tidius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking, and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. This is God's word. Good morning, good morning. Got me, got me. Okay. Just making sure I got such a big mouth. Can't tell if the mic's on or not. Well, good morning, King's Cross. I'm Chad, one of the pastors, and really excited to be here this morning with you to look at Acts 18. We're continuing through the passage uh, of the passages of Acts, and actually we're going to be covering and walking through the entire chapter of 18, really to look at an overview of what's going on. See, Paul's been moving through. Last week he was in Athens. Last week he was engaging with the philosophers. He was talking about the idols that were there. And we, we noted the fact that even after he uh, left Athens, there's no real notable mention of a church in Athens historically. Nothing that we see a letter written to, even though Athens is a pretty significant city. And he moves over and continues on to a nearby, a neighboring Greek city in Acts 18, where he enters into Corinth. And he starts to engage with people in that space. And actually, he continues on through the rest of this chapter into the end, where there's a transition from what's commonly known uh, from the second missionary journey to the third missionary journey. But it's kind of just a, a swift transition. He comes back to Antioch, and he keeps pressing on. But as we're looking through this passage, as we're looking through Acts, what's notable is that Paul has continued to move forward with the gospel, listening to what, what Jesus has commanded his disciples from the beginning, to go and make disciples, other disciples, and that I would be with you. And, and, and what we've hopefully continued to remember is that mission of the church, the early church, is still our mission, even if we're not going to Corinth and to Galatia and to Athens, even though some of you may, just as even Aaron had mentioned, we are not opposed to and excited for and encouraging of sending you out to the nations. 
But the gospel goes forward here, not just elsewhere. It changes lives next door to you. It changes lives at your workplace. And what I want to do this morning as we look at this is I want to recognize that if we believe as God's people the gospel, if we trust in Christ, in Jesus for salvation, if we truly believe in the transformative power of the gospel, that means, like Paul, we should be living on the mission of advancing the gospel. And living on that mission requires that we intentionally order our lives for the advancement of God's kingdom. That we think intentionally about the way that we live day by day. And what I want to do in Acts 18 is I want us today to go through and look at seven missional practices that we can see and recognize in the life of Paul and some of the other disciples. Seven missional practices that we can recognize and we can cultivate in our own lives and that we can celebrate in the lives of others while we're on this mission together. And the first one I want to look at is in verses one through three to cultivate gospel partnerships. So let's look at it together. I take a step back because I have this big highlighted note to remember to pray because I want to invite the spirit to be with us. The spirits of what empowers the mission. So let's pray that he empowers our, our time together. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you for the way that you demonstrate your mission, your work, your providence in the life of Paul and all those disciples we see working in Acts. God, give us discernment to hear from your spirit this morning. This morning to see in the words of scripture the evidence of your grace and God convict our hearts where we need to change and lead us so that we might be more effective disciples reaching the nations with the transforming work of the gospel. You promise your spirit. Teach us. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So now let's look at verses one through three about cultivating gospel partnerships. It says this, after this, he left Athens and he went to Corinth where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked with them. Aquila and Priscilla, usually easy to come by, rhymes together, you think about it. We have good friends of ours, my wife's best friend from college is named Jess, Jessica, and she met a guy named Jesse. And so they got married. We're like Jess and Jesse, easy to remember. So the same thing going on here. You got, you got Aquila and Priscilla, and there are two people that Paul meets who, for some reason, there's some debate on this. Claudius has ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. They're of a Jewish heritage, and they've, had, they've been expelled from Rome. Now, here's what's interesting about that particular fact is that they're believers, by all evidences here. They're Christian and they're coming from Rome. Do you know where Paul or any apostles that we know have not been? They haven't been to Rome. Matter of fact, the letter that he writes later to Rome is about wanting to come to Rome and about hearing about the church that's there. He may have heard from Aquila and Priscilla. And so we know back in Acts when all the people came together for, uh, back at the beginning of this this book, where they came together for Pentecost, that it says some Jews were from Rome. And so we see conversions happen at Pentecost and then 
we, we only see the highlights of Paul and the apostles, but the gospel has been going through all these other people that have no names. And that is so encouraging for you and I, isn't it? Because my name's not showing up in scripture. Okay? It, it, there's a whole list, a hall of faith in Hebrews where it set, talks about all these others that aren't worthy of their names being put here. I don't even think I fall on that list of those worth, not worthy of it, but still none the same. Just the same, we can be like these nameless people that have established a church in Rome so strong that for some reason they're getting kicked back out of Rome because they're stirring trouble. Now, some of the speculation is that because the trouble of the Christians there in conflict with the Jewish community already there, the Romans are just like, guys, just y'all get, all get out of here. Just all get out of here, okay? They don't want to put up with it. And we actually see some of that later here with, a, with some discourse that happens with Paul. So we have Aquila and Priscilla. They show up. They have uh, an impact throughout parts of this chapter alone as well as others. And they're fellow tent makers, okay? They're people that have a similar skill, they, they, they have something of affinity within the cross and Christ. They have an affinity within their ability to do work. Paul says, hey, let's do it together. Let's, let's, let's work together on this. And so they work together and share the work that they have as well as opening up and freeing them for other missionary work. Because in the next verse, it says Paul, as he regularly does, goes to the synagogue. You got the Christian business, business, business as missions right here in Acts chapter 18. So my encouragement as we look at this and we see Paul is recognizing that though he is uniquely called by God for a work, he's not called by God to do that work on his own. He, he sees opportunities for partnerships in the gospel in Aquila and Priscilla, and he pursues that both in the gifts and talents that God's given them, the desires to see the gospel go forth, the work that the Lord's done in both of their hearts aligns them on that mission, and they pursue it intentionally. And so for us, we should be as well reflecting on our relationships. Are there, inf are there individuals with whom you can intentionally partner in mission? Are there opportunities for us to pursue that together? Are there like-minded believers who share our passion for the gospel and want to intentionally engage and collaborate together? Remember that partnerships amplify our impact and effectiveness in spreading the gospel. It's not for us to be a solo artist. Ecclesiastes 4 tells us in verse 9 through 12 that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. We just look for opportunities in our life to cultivate gospel partnerships. We should serve together using our gifts and talents to advance the kingdom of God. We should engage in intentional missional conversations with one another, sharing experiences, challenges, and victories on our mission so that we might be emboldened. Pray for one another, both interceding and sharing burdens and seeking God's guidance together so that we could pray for one another and together as for the mission, inviting God's power and presence into that shared mission. We should collaborate on evangelistic efforts, plan community outreaches, mission trips, sharing the gospel in our spheres of influences in the way that we can encourage one another. Listen, in the tapestry of God's redemptive work, he weaves relationships into a masterpiece of shared purpose, empowering us to accomplish far more together than we could ever achieve alone. Let's not overlook the divine appointments for intentional gospel partnerships. 
And true partnership in the gospel is not just about finding someone who completes us, but it's also about finding someone who challenges us to be more like Christ. And together, we can impact the world for his kingdom. The second thing that flows right off, the second practice that we see, and it occurs in conjunction with Priscilla and Aquila, is to pursue missional rhythms in our life. In verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. If you've been in Acts for any period of time or you've been with us, you should recognize that every time Paul goes into a city, he's jumping into the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue. He has a background with the Pharisees. He's trained. He's familiar as a Jew. He knows what they think, how they talk, what they discuss, and he starts to reason with them. That's his first step. He's accepted and received by some, but often this leads to him pursuing relationships with Gentiles outside of the synagogue. But it's a rhythm that he knows is faithful to both the gospel and also it's a rhythm that he's familiar with himself, that God's equipped him for. His consistent pattern every Sabbath is to go in and talk to those people about Jesus. There's a, a quote that's often attributed to Roman philosopher Seneca. We talked about him a few weeks ago. It's very little evidence that he ever said it, but we'll go with it. But you, maybe you've heard this. It says, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. Consider a runner who diligently follows a training schedule, right? They're, they're an athlete who's preparing for something, running at the same time each day, and their consistent rhythm builds endurance, strengthens, and improves their performance. What I'm saying is in that same way, we can establish a pattern in our mission that opens up the opportunity to, for the Spirit to grow us, to discipline our lives, to improve our effectiveness as missionaries. The Spirit often works in the consistent missional patterns in your life. You know, regular times of prayer and studying God's Word are valuable and important for preparing our hearts and minds for the kingdom and for the mission, but they are no less important as regular times of sharing the gospel and acts of service. To go out amongst the people in a regular way that you can have opportunities with unbelievers, with those who are in your circles, to be intentional and committed to develop these habits that align with God's mission. So consider for yourself, as you think about uh, cultivating missional habits and missional practices, are there areas and spaces you already regular, uh, you are already in regularly or that you have gifts and talents in? Right, that you, you have the opportunity to use those gifts. Paul was a tent maker. And so being with other tent makers in a space that he could meet people was something that was, he was gifted towards or had the ability or the knowledge to do. He was already in that space. I, I heard an interesting testimony from somebody who's the lead singer of Alice in Chains. Anybody that's their favorite band? I don't know if you knew this, Alice Cooper is a believer, okay? Um, came to faith much later after much of the uh, rock star lifestyles, he would call it, had taken a toll on him for sure. But he came to a point where he felt he could not deny that Christ was real. And he, and he had a conversation with a pastor and he said, I think, I guess it's time for me to stop being Alice Cooper. And, and he said, well, I don't know. I don't think God makes mistakes. He said, you are in a unique place in that community. You're actually, I think the quote he said was, it's like you're in the camp of the Philistines and you were their leader. 
if you could be in those spaces, but yet live a life that honors and follows in obedience to Christ, what a testimony that might be. So we can look at the places God already has us intentionally. How could we possibly live our mission purposely where God has already placed us and gifted us? We, could also, we should also consider new spaces and unique opportunities. Paul was a tent maker by trade, but what is interesting about Luke's writing is that he abbreviates and shortens everything up in these tight little pithy sentences, right? He says he made some tents, but there's so much more behind that. There's really so much more behind that because when you know the history of Corinth, it was actually a hotspot for these, uh, they were every two years, kind of like Olympics would be, but these games that they had, big time Greek games. Greeks were all into games. You guys heard of the Olympics? Anybody? Okay. All right. Every four years they had the Olympics. Actually, they were called the Isthmian Games in, in Corinth. And so the Olympiad was this thing that the way that the Greeks measured time and the Olympic Games happened every four years, all right? If you need a little background on this. The Olympic Games were the starting point and then they had the Nemean and the Isthmian Games both held in different months in year two, followed by the Pythian Games in year three, and then the Nemean and the, I'm saying these terrible, Isthmian Games in year four. And then the cycle repeated after the Olympic Games again. So essentially you had every two years the Isthmian Games and the Isthmian Games most definitely happened because Paul was here in Corinth for 18 months. So he had the games going on. And what happens when thousands and hundreds of thousands of people show up in a city wanting to watch some games, big sports enthusiasts, and the city has no room? You guys ever seen like big rock con? I mean like, yeah, yeah, this man was busy. Okay, they had, the games were held on an isthmus, that's where the name comes from, near Corinth. And if you didn't want to commute back to the city or just didn't have a space to stay, there were tents all over the place. Repairing tents, making new tents. Dude was busy and God had gifted him. And he said, hey, there's a new field. How about I work here? So what are new spaces and places and opportunities that you have gifts in that God could use for new missional opportunities? And this doesn't have to be crazy <laughs> or just a regular rhythm. Do you get coffee at the same spot every morning? Do you go to the same barber? I do, but he knows Jesus. <laughs> so we can encourage one another. Those kind of regular rhythms are places that we can be in regular work for the Lord as he cultivates opportunities. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, verse 15, that therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord. Everywhere you go, you might have a chance to be missional. Where does God have you regularly? Where could you be? What are the rhythms that we could instill? And establishing a pattern in our lives like this is not about routine, but about intentional discipline that propels us forward on the mission. And, and, and I will be honest with you because maybe you're thinking this. Every step into your regular coffee shop may not feel like a glorious encounter for the kingdom. I'm sure making tents for throngs of sports enthusiasts was not always glorious. Probably frustrating at times. As you're in your workplace, as you're in these spaces, you can be regularly there and it might not always seem like it's doing some glorious work missionally. But when you're thinking intentionally 
about the kingdom, let's not underestimate the power of small intentional steps taken consistently. Because it's through these faithful intentional rhythms that we might embark on great journeys and witness Jesus transform lives around us. And so I might encourage you for the third, the third practice we see evidenced in this text, and that's persevering in the faith. Acts 5, 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood is on your heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, along with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. So this is a summary where Paul is continuing in the temple and he's being rejected. It says, in fact, they blasphemed, meaning that they probably blasphemed against Jesus as being the Messiah, like you're out of your mind. And they just threw out whatever slander and whatever blasphemy was there. And that's the point when Paul says, forget it, I'm moving on. But he doesn't stop there. He's not discouraged. He doesn't just leave town. He rather turns his attention to those who might receive it. And we see that happens. The Corinthians, when they heard, many of them, it says, believe and were baptized. A church is formed in this space. Saints come together because Paul is not deterred. He perseveres in faith. He trusts that God has people to reach and he wants to, he wants to testify about the gospel. We should look at this as well as others and be reminded that discouragements might come. Opposition will come. If you are testifying in a regular space, there's a chance, hey, hey, you have a morning spot at the coffee shop and you're talking about Jesus, there's somebody, somebody might come in and not like it. Shoot, they, they might push you out and make you move on. That doesn't mean you give up on the mission God has put before us. That means there's a new place he's moving you to. I mean, Aquila and Priscilla has come here from Rome. They didn't know what was next, but they wanted to faith, be faithful. So they joined Paul. And you can see that in Corinthians, in those letters, because of the work they did, God established a work. He brought together the saints. And my encouragement to us is this, what Paul says in Galatians 6, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we don't give up. Even though there's discouragement, even though there's opposition, Paul moves on to the Gentiles and says, I'm gonna preach to them because the gospel and the kingdom are gonna go forth. And perseverance is ultimately an unwavering trust in the sovereignty of God. It, it fuels our obedience to his mission. It's the firm belief that as we remain steadfast, God's faithful hand guides us through every trial and triumph. He, shaping our character, fulfilling his purpose in ways we cannot fathom. He makes us new and he makes others new. And so as you persevere in the faith and you follow after him, I think the next characteristic we see, the next practice we see in, in, in 9 through 11 is important, that we discern and follow the Spirit's leading. The Lord said to Paul in the night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you 
and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. So what did Paul do? Verse 11, he stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. He made a year and a half commitment because of a dream. Okay, that's what some people look at this and say. He has a night vision is what's recorded here. The Lord shows up in his dream and says, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. The Lord knew that he had reason to be discouraged. I mean, he did blaspheme Christ, tried to kick him out of the synagogue. I'm sure there's others that mocked him. Nobody's not, not everyone's ready to receive this, but God brought him encouragement. And he heard from the Lord. He heard what he said and he was obedient to that. And we, we are blessed by Corinthians. We are blessed by the letter to the church at Corinth. We are blessed by, the, the Corinthians are blessed by an 18 month period where Paul is working and serving and teaching and preaching in their city. And I have asked you a question. Do you think the spirit doesn't speak to us today? If you don't hear the spirit today, ask, pursue. Because here's, here's what we do know, that if we are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in him, Jesus says that we are promised the spirit. That we're not left alone on the mission. Even though I say we search for gospel partnerships together, like we're one church together on mission, he's also promised not to leave us alone if we're by ourselves. That we have a partner in the spirit. That he speaks to us. And even though we often have the spirit drowned out by the noise of our life, believe me, he speaks. He speaks. Do you know that? In, do you know we have, we have story after story in which the Lord, when Jesus comes to people in dreams in closed off countries that can't have missionaries, that leads them to come to a place where missionaries are and says, I don't know why, but this guy Jesus shows up in my dream and I'm supposed to ask you about him. He's still working where we can't get. Well, that's encouraging. He's still working where you're not there yet. The Spirit is cultivating the ground for us and working ahead of us. Do we trust that leading? Does Paul trust that as the Lord comes to him and says, stay here, there's people in this city, that there are actually people in this city? Do you trust that when he says, trust me, speak to this person about me? Do you hear that voice? It's not the enemy saying to share the gospel. I'm pretty certain about that. I'll have to check my notes. Do you trust when he says, encourage your brother or sister, right? They need your encouragement. Give them a call, text them. Meet them at church, speak to them. You don't know what, you know what the deal, details are. They just need your encouragement. Do you hear that voice? Do you trust and follow that voice? God's spirit still talks to us today. We can seek the spirit in prayer. We can seek the spirit by studying his word. We can speak the spirit in silence. Have you ever practiced silence? I have a hard time with that. <laughs> I do. <laughs> to listen, to pray, to read God's word, to hear from him, to pray, to speak to him, and then just to sit silent and listen to listen. 
We can cultivate our, our ears to hear the Spirit through prayer, through studying His Word in silence, but we, can also, we also do that by our obedience to Him. That as we hear from the Spirit, we obey how He directs. Do you obey when God leads? <laughs> do we obey the simple things that are already printed on paper? To be making disciples. And what I want you to hear as well is that not only can you cultivate your discernment to hear the Spirit, but we can, we can quench the Spirit is what the Scripture tells us. We can, we can ignore the Spirit's leading and we can dull our ears to hear Him. We can accept the noise of the world that would surround us and we can ignore where God leads us. We do that by not obeying the clear text of what God has already told us. We do that by not following what the Spirit is telling us day after day. And we do that by listening to false spirits. Do you know I believe in that? The it tells us to test the spirits. That, that even the enemies of God work in the church. That there are, there are, there are wolves among sheep. That you could be following. He, the church at Corinth, Paul sent a letter and said, you're listening to the wrong spirit. The church in Galatia, which is at the end of this chapter, he told him, you, even if an angel shows up from heaven, but he's not preaching the right gospel, Ignore that one. He says there are lies that we can follow if you don't follow the Spirit of God and what's true and honest in His Word before us, and yet you follow the false spirits of this world and the age around us, then you're not going to hear from the Spirit of God. Your ears are dull. And, and this is my encouragement to you to pursue the Spirit first and foremost. One thing you can start with to ask. To ask. James 1.5 tells us, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously without criticizing. It will be given to him. We can ask. That's a first step. To hear from the Lord. <laughs> Later in James, it's like he's beating the same drum. In chapter 4, verse 2, he says, you don't have because you don't ask. And you ask, and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. If you ask because you want to hear from the Lord, if you ask because you, like Paul, want to hear from his direction and spirit in your life, then like Paul, we can, in the same way, hear from God's spirit in our life as he guides us and follow him in obedience. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And let's not lean on our own understanding. See, true discernment is not actually found in any kind of intellectual work or prowess or any kind of worldly wisdom. It's in the humble surrender of our hearts to the voice of God. It's recognizing the voice of God amidst the noise of the world and following him with an unwavering trust and obedience. And that's the fifth characteristic we see that Paul is doing in verses 12 through 17. He's trusting in God's providence. While Gal Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, I would be, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. So he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. 
but none of these things mattered to Galileo. Now this is interesting because Paul is actually saved from punishment by a guy who could care less about Paul. Actually, it's evidence from history and what this text seems to insinuate is Galileo, like many Romans, were basically anti-Semitic. They didn't want to deal with the Jews. They're there. They had to be there. And they're like, I don't care about your stuff. They come before Galileo and they present Paul with this really vague uh, accusation. He's persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law, essentially trying to get Galileo on their side of like, maybe it's a Roman issue, maybe not. But he cues in. He understands that this has nothing to do with any kind of a serious crime. And despite his best efforts to not care about Paul, God uses Galileo to preserve Paul's life and to send him back out for more mission work. God's providence is at work here. There's really no clear way in which you can say Paul did anything for himself. As a matter of fact, verse 14 is clear. Luke tells us Paul was about to open his mouth and then Galileo speaks up. Paul's like, well, I, let, me, let me mount my defense. But Galileo looks at the circumstance, and here's another hint to the fact that he, cares, he could care less. Once he got him outside, they took the leader of the synagogue and beat him, and it was like, he didn't care. Whatever, you do your thing. This has nothing to do with our law, and I'm not getting involved. So they meant for, what they meant for ill to harm Paul, God used a secular leader who only thought of power and of, uh, of, being, uh, of doing what is in his best interest could care less about the Jews to preserve his life because God is provident. God is at work. Maybe you've heard the story of the drowning man. Have you heard this parable? A fellow was stuck on his rooftop in a flood and he was praying to God for help. Soon a man in a rowboat came by and the fellow shouted to the man on the roof, jump in, I can save you. And the stranded fellow shouted back, no, it's okay, I'm praying to God and he's gonna save me. So the rowboat went on, then a motorboat came by. The fellow in the motorboat shouted, jump in, I can save you. To this, the stranded man said, no thanks, I'm praying to God and he's gonna save me, I have faith. So the motorboat went on. Then a helicopter came by and the pilot shouted, grab this rope, I'll lift you to safety. And to this, the stranded man again replied, no thanks, I'm praying to God and he is going to save me, I have faith. So the helicopter reluctantly flew away. Soon the water rose above the rooftop and the man drowned. He went to heaven and he finally got his chance to discuss the whole situation with God. <laughs> At which point he exclaimed, I had faith in you, but you didn't save me. You let me down, you let me drown. I don't understand why. To this God replied, I sent you a rowboat and a motorboat and a helicopter, what more did you expect? God in his providence, we might look for some over-the-top miraculous salvation, but God works in his providence through normal means. Galileo wasn't trying to honor the Lord. Galileo didn't care about Jesus, but God used him to preserve Paul's life. I mean, Sosthenes got a beating out of it, didn't work out as well for him. But this is a circumstance where Paul didn't get a beating because he does sometimes as well. Sometimes it doesn't go like we think it should. Sometimes it doesn't go 100% great, but God is always provident. He is always at work. Romans 8.28 tells us that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose. And I know that that is a very 
weighty matter when we are on the deepest, darkest points of our life. And I don't want to be flippant about that. Matter of fact, I would encourage you as a brother and sister in Christ, when you have someone you know in a very dark point, don't pull out Romans 8, 28. Don't. The encouragement I have for you is that we can trust in the character of who God is. That's what underlies his providence. That even though we don't understand always what's going on, that we can trust him. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way, that God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Don't be discouraged by the opposition you face in the mission. Instead, be encouraged by the knowledge that God is at work. Remember that God's providence is not limited by human circumstances. Even amidst the darkness of opposition, God's providential hand is at work, silently turning obstacles into opportunities for his glory. The sixth practice we see Paul or the others exercising is to encourage one another. Verses 18 through 23, after staying for some time, Paul said farewell to the brothers and sisters and sailed away to Syria. Accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, he shaved his head at Sincrea because of a vow he had taken. When they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue again and debated with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he declined, but he said farewell and added, I'll come back to you again if God wills. Then he set sail for Ephesus. On landing at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he set out, traveling through one place after another in the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. What you'll note about Paul's work is that he starts off ahead with the message of the gospel, planting new churches, and he backtracks and goes through and strengthens and encourages those same disciples and brothers. He doesn't leave them hanging. It's not a matter where evangelism is the end, but discipleship continues through as he encourages and strengthens one another. Yes, he encourages and strengthens the disciples, as it says here. Paul has a very deep commitment to strengthening all the disciples he encounters on his journey. And there's a point here at the very beginning, I want to not ignore this because it's, it stands out. He shaved his head because of a vow he had taken. That's not necessarily, it's not, it's not, it's not like some kind of a youth group thing where you hit like a, like a goal and like the youth group leader shaves their head or whatever because they were, it says he has a vow. It's an interesting one. I don't know. We don't have clarity because Paul, Luke is so brief of what this is specifically about, but the indication seems to be like some kind of a Nazaritic vow or something of which he is thanking God for his protection in Corinth. There's some connection there loosely at least, insinuated, okay? So there's this where he's praising God, he's encouraged by that, and, it, and, and literally think about this, by shaving his head, he's giving himself something to encourage others with because, Paul, what's the deal? You got a new, new cut, what's going on with you? You know what, God was private and he protected me. He strengthened me. Can't tell you what God did. So there's a sense in which he is setting up a monument that's visibly on his head while he walks around. I don't think I'm planning on shaving my head, by the way. My barber discourages that. Uh, but but he's, he's encouraging uh, the others by, by celebrating and being faithful to a vow he's taken before the Lord to honor him for what he's done. And then he goes forth to all the churches and he strengthens all the disciples. We're the body of Christ with many members. We're not all the same. But let me ask you this. 
if you could raise your hand if you have not experienced any discouragement this last year. Okay, I see no hands. Uh, raise your hand if in this past month you've experienced knowing discouragement. No discouragement this past month, anybody? Raise your hand if you've not experienced any discouragement this past week. Discouragement? Yes, discouragement. I could probably ask you, have you experienced discouragement today? Here's the reason I ask that. God has granted us the body of Christ. That's a gift. Can I encourage you to not hesitate to encourage one another, to build one another up, to offer to pray for one another, to ask how you can be praying for one another, to walk alongside one another, to laugh together, to weep together, to celebrate God's work in our lives, to celebrate the way he's worked in others' lives, the way that he has shown himself faithful and provident like Paul saw his faithfulness in Corinth, we can celebrate that together. And he says so much in Thessalonians when he writes to them in 1 Thessalonians, it says, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. He says, keep doing that. Encouragement is the heartbeat of a thriving community. Lifting one another up to live out the mission. And finally, the last characteristic, the last practice we see at play in verse 24 through 26 is always be disciple-making. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. He had been instructed in the ways of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he knew only John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and after Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And after he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, Apollos, to me, at least as a character, he shows up on the scene in, in verse 24, and he seems to be a guy at least described as someone who's eloquent. The wording there has to do with someone good with words. This guy is good with writing. This, they play this off in the Greek in all kinds of ways. Apparently, he's very good and charismatic and speaking, and he's bold about it. I, I actually liken this I mean, I wasn't eloquent. Maybe that's a bad example. But, but I think about Apollos here. He's got this word he believes and he's teaching about Jesus, but it says he only knew about John's baptism. There was something he was missing. I've heard this phrase used. I think uh, Pastor at Imago Dei Church, Tony Marita used this, and I, I, I went ahead and adopted it. A period of his life where he was ignorance on fire. It was like he was just full bore going at it, but he didn't quite have it all right. Okay. So, so in this case, Apollos is, is short on something. And, the, and then Priscilla and Aquila show up and all it says is they heard him and note what it, how it describes, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. They didn't 
come out and confront, he's speaking publicly. They didn't come out and confront him. They didn't come out and try to build, tear him down. They didn't try to undermine him. Like, listen, I know he's got that, but there's something missing. No, they took Apollos aside and they said, praise the Lord, you love Jesus. That's great. Let me tell you something. They encouraged him and built him up. They gave him more knowledge that he didn't already have. And as a result, what happens in Apollos' life? He goes on across to Achaia and it says he was a great help to the other disciples because he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. This guy went on a rampage. Matter of fact, so much so that later Apollos is mentioned by Paul as people have differing, the different camps. They're like, listen, I was saved by Apollos. I was saved by Paul. Like he, he's got followers of his discipling. And so my encouragement for you here is that Priscilla and Aquila saw an opportunity and a need and they took him aside and encouraged and discipled Apollos more accurately. There's somebody in your life that you could be discipling. There's absolutely, listen, here's the secret. You only have to be a step ahead of someone to help lead them. And I took the saying that is very common in the sales world, the ABCs of sales always be closing. And I just went with ABD, nothing else. Always be disciple making, okay? Always be disciple making, but do it graciously. Do it humbly. Encourage one another like we, said, we saw before and do it for people to point them closer to Christ. Be pointing people to Jesus. Paul's letter to Ephesians, he wrote later, encourages the brothers and sisters to not let corrupting talk come out of their mouth, but only such that is good for building up others as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear that your words wouldn't be tearing down people. Apollos was, had something wrong, but Priscilla and Aquila didn't tear him down. They built him up and they strengthened him because discipleship is not a, a platform for superiority, but it's a platform for grace. It's about coming alongside one another, building up and helping each other grow in the fullness of Christ. See, grace-filled discipleship is not about having all the answer, answers, but about walking alongside one another asking the right questions and discovering the beauty of God's truth together. Together. And it never ends, by the way. Did you know that? We are finite beings. Discipleship is an infinite journey. It's not a destination. It's a relentless pursuit of becoming more like Christ and helping others do the same thing. So my encouragement from this, as we see Paul's life, as we see the way in which he's walked through Corinth, as he's walked through, gone to Galatia, as he's worked with Aquila and Priscilla, is that we should be intentional about cultivating gospel partnerships. We should pursue missional rhythms in our life. We should always persevere in faith, trusting in God's providence, discerning and seeking and following the Spirit's leading as we, as we follow the Lord on mission, encouraging one another, building one another up, and always be disciple-making.